particularly like finding really important stories that otherwise wouldn't be told. And I'm willing to spend a lot of time doing that and be persistent. And it's really paid off. Hey folks, welcome to Lights Out Mass, a podcast about government transparency or the lack thereof in Massachusetts. I'm Andrew Clemere, here with my co-host Jeff Raymond. Back in third grade, you always had to do those sort of like, who's your hero? Who do you want to be when you grow up type things? And when all my classmates, they went ahead and they said, oh, I want to be a firefighter or my dad's my hero or whatever. I picked Dick Albert from Channel 5, the weatherman. The weatherman? The weatherman from WCVB. Okay. I wanted to be a weatherman, and it was just really one of those interesting things that I just thought of this weekend. So, okay. Well, happy Monday. You're not a weatherman. You're a podcaster. So, I guess your (laughs) your childhood dreams were destroyed. (laughs) All right. We're recording on uh, Monday. uh, Nope. It's not October. It's November 6th. I'm reading the old script. That's why it's November 6th, 2023. And it's been a few weeks since we last recorded, but the boys are back in town, Jeff. We are here with Todd Wallach, a great journalist. He works for WBUR since 2021. He previously was uh, a Globe reporter from 2007 until he joined WBUR. And he's kind of like a something of a public records guru for Massachusetts. So we're, we're really excited to talk to him. Todd has been involved in a lot of public records lawsuits. So that's something we're really excited to talk with him about. He's been, I don't know, possibly involved with more public records lawsuits than any other journalist in the state. I don't think his name has actually been on any of them, but his public records requests are what lead to these lawsuits when he's working at the Globe in particular. One thing we really want to talk with Todd about is the criminal offender record information law, the so-called Cori law, which is often cited by police departments to, and also prosecutors' offices, district attorneys, the attorney general's office, to avoid disclosing information to journalists about incidents involving police officers and you know potential misconduct. So we, we want to talk with Todd about that. But first thing, Todd, why don't you give us a little bit more of an intro about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm currently an investigative reporter for WBUR. I love investigative reporting. I love finding out things that other people don't want us to know or that's important or I particularly like finding really important stories that otherwise wouldn't be told. And I'm willing to spend a lot of time doing that and be persistent and it's really paid off i previously spent 14 years at the boston globe as you mentioned most of that on the boston globe spotlight team and i've been fortunate to work at places that have lawyers who are willing to help me get public records and be willing to file public records lawsuits so that is that's been a huge help so you said you you went from the Globe to WBUR. You know you've been lucky to be with a lot of places that will give you some legal representation for these sorts of things. When you moved to BUR, was that like you probably already had a reputation of being somebody who's not going to let go? Like, did they know that this was going to be an extra investment on top of you know everything else? Yeah. So a funny thing happened. Maybe if a few weeks after I joined WBUR. I ran across this court case involving a state senator suing OCPF, what does it stand for? Office of Campaign and Political Finance, the agency that handles campaign finance regulations. And I didn't see any records online. And when I asked for the records, I was told they were all sealed. And the hearings were not public when I asked for information on how to listen in on the hearing. And that's really unusual. Court hearings are not usually held in secret, particularly in civil cases. And this is one involving public officials and public agencies. So I immediately wound up talking to my editors and talking to the WBUR lawyers and 
WBUR general counsels said, you know, I thought that we'd be dealing with you once you joined WBUR, but I didn't think it would be this soon. (laughs) (laughs) And we got our outside counsel, Jeff Pyle, involved and wound up asking the court to open up the hearings and open up the records. And we did get access to those records. But yeah, I got WBUR involved in opening up records pretty quickly. And we filed two public records lawsuits since I joined. And before I joined, I don't think WBUR had ever filed a public records lawsuit before, at least not in memory. Well, I guess it comes with you. Like Jeff is saying, it's like, uh, it must be like getting hired, like both an asset and a liability. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> this guy's really good at what he does, but we're going to have to spend extra money beyond his salary to make it worth our while. One thing I want to say about you, Todd, and I don't know if you're too modest to take credit for it, but in 2016, Massachusetts got a revised public records law. It was sort of the first major overhaul of the law since the 70s. And I think that your reporting was actually a significant contributor to getting this legislation over the finish line. You did like really in-depth, really persistent reporting on the sort of the state of the public records law between around like 2014 through 2016 when the law was passed. And you were really like hammering home just all these different problems we had with the public records law and really keeping it in the spotlight consistently throughout those, you know, few years. And no pun intended. Yes. And really putting the pressure on different government agencies and and on the legislature. And I'm not sure that, you know, without stories in the Boston Globe over and over and over again, which I'm sure most of them were pitched by you to your editor and not vice versa. I don't know that we would have actually gotten this law passed. Uh, thanks. No, I appreciate that. And I'm very proud of the work I did covering public records at the Boston Globe. I think the stories were really important. I don't think people knew how bad the situation was in Massachusetts with the lack of transparency and access to information because most people in Massachusetts just deal with Massachusetts, so they don't have a national context. And although I went to high school in Massachusetts, I'd worked in California, I'd worked in Ohio, and I'd seen that people had much more access to information on what their government was doing day to day than they did in Massachusetts. And so many records that you can easily get elsewhere are really, really difficult to get in Massachusetts. And that just shocked me. And so part of the reporting I did was to survey other states and show where we stood. And I found, for instance, that in Massachusetts, uh, it takes longer to get records than in almost any other state, according to data that Muckrock had collected at the time. Muckrock is uh, a nonprofit organization that helps process a lot of public records requests for people and therefore has compiled and collected a lot of data on how long it takes for public records requests to get fulfilled. I was able to find that, I think for the first time, that Massachusetts was the only state where the governor's office, the judiciary, and the legislature were completely exempt from the public records law. And I don't think anybody ever knew that before. And I was able to do some stories where I found particularly compelling examples of where people were denied records. So, for instance, I reported on this lawyer named Thomas Workman, who was trying to get records of breathalyzer tests from the state police, because he had a suspicion that there were some problems with the breathalyzer tests. Which turned out to actually be correct, by the way. There's been, I don't know, we have time to get into all this, but there's been a lot of problems with breathalyzers that, you know, courts have had to deal with in Massachusetts, and lots of cases have been thrown out. He was absolutely right on that. He was absolutely right. And in fact, the state, I think, has been on the hook for a lot of money and legal fees. And there have been a lot of cases that have been thrown out because of problems with the breathalyzer test. And I just have to wonder 
if Thomas Workman had been able to get those records earlier, would he have been able to identify, bring to light problems with breathalyzer tests far earlier and prevent a lot of the erroneous cases that later developed? Would he have wound up saving the government tons of money? Would he have wound up preventing a lot of cases from getting thrown out of court? It's a really good example of how government secrecy can sometimes create all these perverse consequences. And in his case, he was told, we want $2.7 million for the records. Other states were giving him the records basically for free for almost nothing. Massachusetts wanted $2.7 million. And when I called the state and asked them for comment, I think the state police said, yeah, that's a mistake. We should have only charged him $1.9 million. <laughs> I'll have to, I could look up the exact amount, but, but it was an equally ridiculous sum. It was $1.2 million. You know, we complain a lot as journalists for trouble getting records, but I think it's examples with real people who are trying to get records that are far more compelling to the average person and to lawmakers, and I think that can ultimately make a bigger difference. So... Your your intro to public records litigation, though, I believe was shortly, not shortly, but a few years after you joined the Globe. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I definitely had lawyers help write letters in the past and help press agencies to give me records when they wouldn't. I mean, the first time a lawyer got involved in helping me try to get public records was when I was a cub reporter working in the Green County Bureau, the Dayton Daily News in Ohio. I was the bureau chief. I was the, also the only person in the Green County Bureau in Xenia, Ohio. And I wanted to get just some records like the county assessor database. And county assessor and other county officials didn't want to give me these databases without charging tens of thousands of dollars. And we wound up getting a newspaper's lawyer involved to help me fight for the records. And I wound up getting them, I think, for $20 instead. Lawyers can be really helpful to have on your side if you have an agency, an organization that has the money to pay for it. But the first time I wound up filing a public records lawsuit was with the Globe. And uh, their attorney, John Albano, who is, some people might know, from a brief appearance and by an actor portraying him in Spotlight, because John Albano has his name on so many important public records lawsuits that involving the state, including suing to get records about misconduct by people in the Catholic Church and priests that have been sealed for many years. In my case, this was more than a decade ago, I was interested in just finding out about settlements involving government employees. And I'd gotten uh, secret settlements involving government employees years ago when I was at the San Francisco Chronicle and found some really interesting ones, including one involving a higher administration official at UC Davis, where somebody quietly disappeared from campus. They got a new title increase in pay, but nobody knew what she did. And it turned out she was going to be fired. She threatened to sue for discrimination. I think her husband was an aide to a powerful legislative committee, and the university cut a deal where they secretly offered to give her a new grander title, a pay raise, and help getting a new job, a positive reference, and also an agreement that she didn't have to do any work for the next two years without <laughs> both both parties' approval. And they couldn't talk about it. I think only two or three people on campus knew about this agreement. It was super secret, and it took months of public records requests to get it, because first I asked for a termination agreement, and they said there was none, and then they wound up saying, oh, well, it was a transition agreement. It wasn't a termination agreement. But anyway, I thought it would be something quick and easy in Massachusetts just to ask for 
what are the settlements that the governor's office has signed and other key uh, big government agencies in Massachusetts? Turned out it wasn't that easy. Agency after agency after agency told me that the names of people who got settlements with government agencies was confidential. So they were giving me the settlement agreements, but for the most part, they were blacking out the names of the employees who got the money. And I also couldn't tell why they got the money. And Globe and I wound up suing every single secretariat in Massachusetts. So all the cabinet level agencies underneath the governor's office. We didn't sue the governor's office because the governor's office has long been considered exempt from the public records law. We sued Massport. We also sued the comptroller's office that handles the money and also has those records and refused to turn them over. And ultimately, a superior court judge wound up ruling that the names of people who get settlements is public, despite objections from the state that will involve people's privacy. There were also a couple of employee unions who maintained that it needed to be secret. A superior court judge ruled it's public. The governor's office did not appeal. And that has been precedent that settlements are now public. Once I got those records, by the way, I found out that contrary to what the government said, many of the people involved in these settlements actually wanted this information public. They didn't feel like they were benefiting by their privacy being protected. They felt like they were wrong. And they wanted that information out. For instance, there were some toll workers who were fired and accused of stealing tons of money from the till on the Mass Pike back when there actually were workers taking in quarters and dollars and other money. And it turned out there wasn't evidence that they actually stole the money. They uh, were given their jobs back. They were given back pay. But the government never cleared their record. Anybody who looked up old articles would still see their names as stealing money. So they very much wanted this information out there, but the government had kept it secret. So now it is far more easier to get records of settlement agreements since this precedent was set. And I'm really grateful that the Globe was willing to spend the money to fight for these records. Yeah. And what, one thing you mentioned earlier was that you didn't sue the governor's office because the governor is exempt from the public records law. And, you know, our current governor, Maura Healy, before she was elected, said she was going to basically comply with the public records law as though her office was subject to the law. And you found something very interesting, though, when you requested these settlement agreements from her office, though, right? Yeah, so I wanted to test whether that was true and she'd actually turn over those records. So I asked for all settlement agreements involving uh, sexual harassment, among other things, from the governor's office. And the governor's office said, well, there have been no settlements in the few weeks since Maura Healy took office involving the governor's office and said all the settlements prior to her office would be kept confidential because that new policy that she stated only goes forward and she said they're not going to release any records going backward and it's actually more restrictive than the policy under the baker administration and past governors so past governors would say we're exempt from the public records law but but we will consider cases on a case-by-case basis we'll consider requests on a case-by-case basis now, Maura Healy is saying all records prior to her administration are automatically sealed, and she won't release any records and won't even consider requests prior to her administration on a case-by-case basis. So I think her policy in some ways is more restrictive than what we had before. That is such an interesting nuance that I hadn't considered when we were like, we did a whole pod on her comments on it, which was a lot of fun because it was just so ridiculous what she was saying. But it's like, that is, that is kind of crazy. That's like, I, I just feel like that's like almost like trying to revise history as it's happening. Because if you pretend it didn't happen, we don't need to worry about this anymore. Don't worry about this curtain here. 
That's crazy. Wow. So Todd, uh, at the beginning, I was mentioning the so-called Corey law, the criminal offender record information law. This is not technically a public records exemption, but it is, we have what's called exemption A, which makes it so if there are laws that exempt records, even if they're not part of the public records law, they can still prevent the public from accessing records. And the Corey law is one of those. Could you just explain what is Corey exactly? It's basically information that the criminal justice system has compiled on individuals. Basically, they're rap sheet. So you, know, you see on TV, you know, what's somebody's criminal record? What's their rap sheet? And you often see a reference to a printout listing every single time they've been arrested, every single time they've been accused of a crime or convicted. And that information is stored in a state database that is restricted. So very few people have access to the full records and the public has limited access. And government agencies have access in between or employers, depending on why they need the information. And the law was originally set up years ago, basically just to describe how this centralized database was set up who would have access to this big Uber database of everybody's full criminal records. And over the years, it got interpreted to mean that all sorts of other criminal records also couldn't be accessed by the public, including just individual arrest reports or individual police reports or mentions of it in some other court document. And so the meaning of the law wound up getting expanded and expanded and expanded so that all sorts of individual records were no longer available to the public. At one point, the court system wouldn't let people look up court cases if they didn't know the obscure code that it was filed under called a docket number. But if they wanted to look up John Doe's court case by their name, the court pulled all those alphabetical indexes and would not make them available to the public, citing Corey. The Globe wound up suing years ago to get access to that in federal court, arguing that there was a First Amendment right to court access, and that was denying First Amendment access. And that's how we got back access to alphabetical court indexes. But the Corey law has made it much, much more difficult to access all sorts of criminal records in Massachusetts just because of this expansive interpretation of it over the years. Yeah, and it's funny because you were saying there there's a case where you would need the docket number just to get the court case. But then after that, there's another court case where they had to argue that just that we can get access to the docket number, right? Like they tried to hide the docket numbers after that, right? Yeah, exactly. So before I joined the Spotlight team, the Spotlight team was looking for cases of public corruption. And they asked the district attorneys, hey, could you just give us a list of cases where you have charged government officials with public corruption and similar types of charges? And they said, we'll make it easy. You don't need to give us names and the full court documents, just give us a list of the docket numbers for cases that you happen to be aware of. And a number of the district attorneys said no. They said that would violate Corey law just to give you the IDs of these cases, even without names or any other information. And the courts ruled, no, that doesn't that doesn't violate Corey. And also it's public records. These are court records that anybody theoretically could walk into a court and see. These should be public. Therefore, you should be able to provide it. And it's not overly burdensome just to ask your staff lawyers, what are the docket numbers for the cases that you recall that fit under under this definition? Yeah, I mean, this is such a big deal because in theory we have this tradition in this country of like courts are public you know like you could walk into the courthouse you can watch the proceedings you can pull the records you can see who's charged with what and you know it's important 
that people are allowed to kind of watch this. Like we don't want people who are being treated unfairly, you know, behind closed doors. And we also don't want people who are getting, you know, unfair, you know, being treated with preferential treatment behind closed doors. And that is kind of like the benefit of keeping everything in the open. And I guess there is kind of like a counter argument that we want people who have like criminal records to be able to be a part of society and to not be sort of marginalized because of their criminal record and not to have every single thing they've done, you know, used against them. But like there, there's like a, a tension there because it's like, how can we have public courts if, you know, we have really restrictive laws about what records people are allowed to access. And as you were saying, it, it kind of comes down to like how this is interpreted, whether it's interpreted in an overly broad way. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's a huge problem and it's it's come up a lot with the court system. One thing you know, we want to know is, are judges biased? Are, do you get different types of treatment based on your race, based on your gender, based on which courthouse you go to, based on which judge you get to? And the courts have made very little information available on this type of issue and, and how they rule. And Corey has often been one of the reasons they cite for not making the raw court data available and restricting access to the courts. If you want to look up court cases online, if you are not an attorney and don't have an attorney login, you are severely restricted in what types of criminal case information you can see. You can't search by name, for instance, online. You have to go to one of the hundred or so courthouses in person to do that. And you also can't get the raw court data. So the courts have passed a policy saying they do not give out bulk data, meaning all the data stored in their court computer system to anyone. And they've cited Corey and they've cited privacy and they've cited other reasons, but it makes it really hard to be able to analyze how our criminal justice system is functioning and whether it's fair. They do say that they'll give out statistics, but it's on a case-by-case -case basis. It's completely voluntary. Sometimes I've asked for statistics and gotten them. Sometimes I've asked for them and been denied. So it's, it's very tricky, and it shows some of the ramifications when the legislature passes a law restricting access to some information, it can wind up having repercussions far beyond what had originally been envisioned. Have you seen the use of the Corey law in terms of public records? Have you seen an evolution of sorts in how it's being implemented and how it's being used over the years? So one area I saw it used was to protect information on bad police officers. So years ago, I was doing a story for the Boston Globe on police officers who've been accused of drunk driving. And a lot of police departments would not give me any records of police officers who are accused of drunk driving. If I knew who the officers were, they would often heavily redact it. If I didn't know the names of the officers, some places like Boston wouldn't even give me the names of officers who've been arrested for drunk driving, citing Corey. And in that case, the Boston Globe and I wound up suing, got a, a ruling that mugshots and arrest reports and incident reports are not protected by Corey. They happen before cases ever even hit the court system. So they can't by nature be considered Corey. But they're still repeatedly run into, into problems. And there's a limited you know, number of, of lawsuits around this, in part because it's only been recently that organizations can recoup their attorney's fees when they sue, and it can be really expensive. It costs tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to file these kinds of lawsuits. Yeah, you guys at WBUR just did a story with Ali Jarmanning, another great WBUR reporter, called Keeping Public Records Secret is Costing Mass, State, and Local Agencies. Uh, you guys were talking just about 
not just how much it's costing you guys, but how much it ends up costing the taxpayers now that this change to the law has been implemented, where at the end of your lawsuit, you can get the town or city or state agency to pay your legal fees. That's a change that was implemented in the 2016 law that I mentioned. But can you tell us a little bit about what you found when you were reporting that story? Yeah, absolutely. So we found a growing number of cases where people, including journalists, but not just journalists, are suing to get records, winning their cases, and the government agency is being ordered to pay their attorney's fees. Uh, in WBUR's case, we sued Boston police, and they paid us about $7,000 to reimburse us for our legal fees. We sued the town of Natick for police records that they were withholding, involving an officer accused of assaulting a dispatcher. And they were required to pay us more than $22,000 to reimburse us for our legal fees. And that's on top of the town's own legal fees, which I think were something like ten dollars or $15,000. And statewide, both the state and cities and towns are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to reimburse people for their legal fees, in addition to their own expense hiring outside attorneys on legal fees. So biting public records and refusing to give information that is clearly public is starting to cost real money in tax dollars to everybody. And that's money that could presumably be used for other government services or much more valuable things. And I know as a journalist who's filed and been involved in filing public records lawsuits, I don't want to sue agencies. I don't want to spend the time and an effort to sue for information. I want to work with government agencies to get information that should be public and help provide that information more quickly to our audience and in a way that's a way that's easier for the government agency. So I hope that government agencies get the message that this is really costly. I think there's just been a culture for so long in the past that there was no penalty for withholding public records. The only penalty was if you would if you gave out records, I think people were worried about getting sued for privacy or some other violation, though I don't know of a single case where that's ever happened. And I think they were also worried about embarrassment. So they only saw a penalty for giving out records. And now it's become clear there's a real penalty for withholding records. More and more often, government agencies are being held accountable by having to spend thousands tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars when they wrongfully withhold records from the public. You feel like they're learning, <laughs> for lack of a better term, because like, you know, I think of, because I'm in central Massachusetts, I think of the Worcester situation where they, the city of Worcester had to pay the Telegram and Gazette some legal fees as part of a very long process there. $180,000 at the end of it, in addition yeah. to whatever they paid for their own attorneys. Yeah, and I have two outstanding requests with Worcester right now that are months old at this point. And who knows what's going to happen with them. And it just seems like I want to be like screaming at the guy at the office saying, haven't you guys, you know, remember what happened last time you guys decided to play around with this? Do you see that they're learning? Do you see that they're evolving in their thinking on how to present this stuff? Or are they just kind of hoping that this, that, you know, folks like you will go away? Uh, it's probably mostly the latter, but... I did that story. I did the story on settlements with my colleague Ali Jarmanning at WBUR. And part of the reason we wanted to do that story was to get the word out that this was happening because we got the sense public officials don't even know that they're being held accountable, that they're on the hook for this money. So we wanted to let people know that a lot of these settlements were happening. Ironically, we asked the city of Boston for a list of their payouts and their settlements involving public records. And they did not give us the records by the <laughs> deadline. Not surprised. Even after ev evoking an extension, two months went by and they still hadn't provided the records. We eventually got them after the story ran and it turned out there were hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlements <laughs> that we didn't even know about. Wow. Uh, it is a real cost. One caveat is that no individual government official has had to pay those that money out. 
It's all coming out of taxpayers' pockets. It's coming out of your pocket and my pocket and collectively society's pocket. No individual has had to pay money for withholding records. And although there are some criminal potential criminal penalties for violating the state public records law, the Attorney General's office is not aware of a single case where it has ever gone after anyone criminally for violating public records law. So I would hope that government officials who are mostly care about their jobs and public service would care about the taxpayer money being spent, but they're not on the hook individually. Yeah. And two other quick points about that story. One is you mentioned that some of these places are spending thousands of dollars on outside legal counsel. Interestingly, when they're hiring outside legal counsel, it's like, wow, what a waste of money hiring these outside lawyers. But we actually generally don't know how much they're spending when they don't hire outside legal counsel because they're not like really required to track that information. Whereas when they hire outside legal counsel, we can say, hey, can we take a look at your, you know, the the legal bills and see how much you, you're being charged for this. Whereas if they're just paying their own lawyers, it's like, okay, well, it's part of their salary, you know, and we don't know, you know, how many hours they're spending on this particular lawsuit. The other point I wanted to make is that you are just looking at kind of the smattering of public records payouts that you could find, but there isn't actually any easy way. There's no centralized database of this stuff. I mean, obviously we have the courts, but those are so difficult to search. And there isn't even a specific way of searching for like public records cases at all, even if you went to every single courthouse. So that's just the stuff you were able to identify by, you know, poking around. We don't actually know how much money is being wasted on this. It could be millions of dollars for all we know. But let's, uh, let's jump back to all the Corey stuff, because I know that there's been some other cases since you, the last one we talked about was the one involving the police reports and mugshots. How has sort of the Corey exemption continued to evolve and how has it kind of continued to prevent reporters from doing their jobs? Yeah, there are just so many places it crops <laughs> up. So, so another case is prison records. I was curious about who is being held in prison and over time and what that population looks like. And the state prison system said that beyond the names of people who are currently in prison, any other information, including their dates of birth, including people who were held in prison in the past, is all confidential under Corey. So prison booking logs are all confidential, they argued, which is extraordinary. It means that you can't find out who was being held against <laughs> who's being detained uh, in a state facility. And by the way, first name and last name is not all that helpful when you have a name like Mike Murphy or John Smith. There are a lot of names that show up again and again. So if you're looking up a relative or somebody in the past or somebody else with a common name, you might not be able to tell if they're still in custody or if they are, which facility they're being held at. Unless you also happen to know their inmate number, which not everybody uh, would necessarily know. It's extraordinary that this information is not public. Or if somebody was held, have they been released? Or why are people in prison? I was also wondering, why are people in, in prison overall? What portion are over minor drug charges over versus other things? And the Department of Corrections has fought for years to try to keep all of this information confidential. Globe just won a lawsuit that, based on my public records laws, uh, records request, that says that much more information is public, basic information, including the full identities of who is being held in state custody should be public. I think the courts said that some information about why they're in custody should still be withheld under the Corey law or privacy law. And it's just shines another light 
into how difficult it is to get basic information about how our criminal justice system is functioning and how our government as a whole is functioning because of this law that was passed years ago for, again, a far narrower purpose of just creating a state database with people's full criminal records and rap sheets so that police could look somebody up when they made an arrest or that maybe later on you could vet somebody you wanted to hire to work in a prison system or work as a teacher. It has had all sorts of wide ramifications. Yeah, and uh, I guess one other public records lawsuit related to Corey that you were involved in was actually filed not by the Globe or WBUR, but by the Attorney General's office, which has the power to enforce public records decisions that have been reviewed by the Supervisor of Public Records over at the Secretary of the Commonwealth's office. It's all very confusing. The, The Supervisor will issue these determinations and then if the agency stops responding or won't comply, she can send it over to the attorney general's office, which can then do their own review. And if they agree, they can bring a lawsuit or try to sort of mediate things. And I believe, Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time that any attorney general in any, you know, any administration had ever brought one of these lawsuits on behalf of a public records requester. Is that right? Absolutely. It's the, it's the first time. And, and what year was this again? Uh, I know it was when Maura Healy was Attorney General. <laughs> 2016. 2016 is the first time in memory that the Attorney General has ever sued to enforce the state public records law that was passed in the 1970s. Before that, never ever bothered to file a lawsuit to enforce this law. Yep. Other priorities, I guess. (laughs) There is a built-in conflict where the Attorney General normally represents state agencies that are being sued. And this is a case where the Attorney General also has the burden of enforcing a law and potentially suing government officials who are violating the law. And it's something that very rarely happens. Mm-hmm. And in this case involving the Corey uh, exemption, it's also a case that the outcome of it affects the attorney general because the attorney general's office is also a prosecuting agency. So there's like a double conflict built in there. Uh, it's true. But somehow they they actually, you know, did the right thing in this case, you know, against all odds. They did. They did. Uh, I had filed requests with all the district attorneys for lists of records that they had sued, essentially their database of cases that they had prosecuted. And I said it would be okay to withhold the names of, of individuals. I wanted the statistical information of the types of cases they're prosecuting and what happened to those cases. And several district attorneys said, you can't even have the data even without names. It would still violate the Corey law. And Maura Healy sued, and Maura Healy won. And the courts ruled that with limited exceptions, that information is public. So, Todd, there was kind of like a caveat to this. They said that I couldn't have the docket numbers for these cases because I had also asked for the unique identifiers for each individual. I was curious if you know, the same people were being prosecuted over and over and over again. Um, And I was interested in the issue of recidivism. But some of the justices in the state Supreme Court were worried that if I had both the docket numbers and the unique identifiers, I could look up some of the docket numbers and see all the records within a county of where somebody had been prosecuted and essentially see somebody's full criminal record for that county. One justice referred to it as having the keys to the kingdom. So they ruled in that consequence where I had the full database of the county and the unique identifiers, I couldn't have the docket numbers. That in turn has had consequences where some district attorneys are now saying, you know that ruling years ago where if you ask for a particular type of case like 
public corruption case and you want to see the docket numbers, well, docket numbers are no longer public under this new SJC decision. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why it confuses people, even who are like well-meaning and trying to understand it, because it's like you have a case that's like, okay, you can have the docket numbers. And then there's like another case that's like, well, you can't have the docket numbers if you have other information. And then it's allowed people to come up with, you know, new arguments about, you know, why they shouldn't release the docket numbers. And it's just sort of confused the entire issue without really spending a lot of time parsing these Supreme Judicial Court decisions. It just like drives you crazy trying to even figure out what it means. And like, yeah. I'm seeing it with the Post Commission documents that I've been getting. Jeff, where they've been... The Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission, the police regulatory agency. Someday I will remember to redefine it for our new listeners. But um, a lot of departments won't give a lot of that information, citing Corey as well. And Post is even redacting their own database based on Corey stuff, all under the same sort of thing that Todd's talking about, where it's like, we don't want to give you too much information where then you can piece together everything as if it's like a puzzle that needs to be assembled. Yeah, and that that was actually something, though, that the Supreme Judicial Court said was that we don't want you to have a database with everybody's criminal record in it. But if you do happen to go to every courthouse and look up somebody's name, you know, 100 plus times or whatever it is, and you do put together a criminal record, that is not the same thing. That's okay. That's legal. That's not the same thing as is getting this database that you guys got. But yeah, I mean, it's just the the sort of uh, precedent on this is a little confusing and there's still things that are kind of up in the air or at the very least, there's confusion that's being created by some of these law enforcement agencies that are still looking for ways to withhold stuff that they don't want you to have. So I don't think that this issue is you know done being litigated. I think there's going to be more lawsuits about this. Jeff, we I don't know how much we said on the podcast about this, but I have two pending public records lawsuits of my own against the Northwestern District Attorney's Office and the Bristol County District Attorney's Office. And this Corey issue has come up in the Northwestern case where I have uh, what are called Brady records. These are records of police officers who may have credibility issues if they testify in court due to some alleged misconduct in their past. And I've been told by the Northwestern DA's office that they can't give me the names or the docket numbers associated with alleged crimes or you know adjudicated crimes by these officers because it would violate the Corey statute. And so I think this is a, a case where we could see this issue of, can we get the names and the docket numbers in one document? Because I know Todd, like in your case, you said, don't give me the names because you didn't want to deal with that issue. Whereas this is a case where we are dealing with that issue and it's it's not like super broad because I'm not asking for a complete database. I'm just asking for police officers. And, you know, this is an issue where the SJC has recognized, I'm sorry, the Supreme Judicial Court for people who aren't, you know, familiar has sort of said that in cases where we're talking about police or public officials, there's sort of a greater need for pu the public to be able to see this information. So I guess that's something where we're going to be able to maybe see how they, how the courts interpret the Corey statute in this particular way. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that, I guess, you know, maybe Todd's going to bring some more lawsuits. Maybe he's working on something that he just hasn't written about yet. <laughs> I have to say, Todd, I, as somebody who's admired your reporting from afar for so long, like I was joking with Andrew when we were trying to get you on that it's like, I was afraid this was going to be like the Chris Farley show from SNL, where I'd be like, hey, remember when you made that public records request? That was awesome. You know, <laughs> and it's like, you know, it, it's it's just really great that you're doing this work, both as somebody who has been doing a lot more public records work in the last year, but also just in terms of being a citizen of the state that is directly and positively impacted by this sort of work you're doing. With that in mind, I do have one question. How are you not mad all the time? <laughs> all the time, because I would just be livid all the time. So how do you do it? <laughs> I, I think it's more of a challenge <laughs> to try to get these records. And frankly, it is very confusing. The law is very confusing. The court rulings are really confusing. And 
much of that is a byproduct of having these sort of broad, vague ex- exemptions. And the Cory Law, some would argue, is not particularly well written. I can't find anything of the Cory Law that actually says records are not public except for the records in the central computer database. And yet it's been applied to all sorts of other records that are not in the database, but just the way it's sort of written uh, has confused a lot of people. Uh, and the courts have interpreted much more broadly. If there were just if there were narrower statutes that said this particular record is not public, or this particular record is public except for somebody's social security number. It would be easier for us to understand. It would be easier for the custodians who are in charge of these records to understand. But a lot of these records are just so broad and they're worded in a way lots of people can have different interpretations. And so consequently, much of the public records law says, well, this is on a case-by-case basis of what we decide. And it makes it a lot harder for everybody. And it means that the courts ultimately would have to decide each time whether records are public if people have the money or the gumption to wind up filing public records lawsuits over things. And But one other added issue is the fact that the Secretary of State's office, which is charged with overseeing um, public records law doesn't generally issue bulletins or guidance on a lot of a lot of the rules for instance you've referenced the fact that uh, exemption c which covers privacy and personnel records was recently amended but the secretary of state's office hasn't put out guidance explaining hey this is the change and this is how we interpret it and what we think it means so i think even just providing clear guidance on what records are public, what isn't, what the law means, would be really helpful to people. Yeah, and they used to issue those bulletins, but for some reason at some point they just stopped and I haven't really gotten a clear explanation as to why that is. It's been a very long time since they've issued one of those bulletins. I decided just for kicks to look up who played the lawyer that you were speaking of in Spotlight, which is a movie I watched a couple of months ago for the first time and loved. His name is David Frazier, and his biggest claim to fame prior to being named on this podcast today, um, he played Michelangelo in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Oh, well, congrats. You couldn't have gotten, you know, a, a better actor, probably. There we go. <laughs> so, Todd, is he, a, is he a party dude, Todd? John Albano? <laughs> Uh, he's very funny and remarkably calm and he just he loves doing media law i I think it's actually a minority of what he does for work because uh newspapers don't have that much money so i think commercial real estate might be the majority of what he does but he's a pleasure to work with he's been extremely helpful and i've never seen him get upset Uh uh-huh but not so much a party dude, sounds like. <laughs> no no nunchucks. Michelangelo was a nunchuck one, right? Yeah. Yes. So- I, I, have, I have really trouble trouble picturing in that light. <laughs> uh, and since Spotlight came up, and I mentioned I worked on the Spotlight team for a number of years, I should say that I joined the team after they did the Catholic abuse reporting. I got to work with people who were portrayed in the film and I was at the Globe when they filmed the movie and it was fun to see actors walking around and, and find out what they did in order to try to capture the look of, of the Globe. But that reporting preceded me. So do you feel like you are have to say that every single time you mention you're on the spotlight <laughs> team? It's like you don't want to like stolen valor. Well well certainly when I'm mentioning of the Catholic abuse story like I, I did in referencing John Albano. I don't want there to be any confusion. <laughs> and I certainly don't want to take credit for fantastic, amazing work that I, I didn't do. No, you've done plenty of other fantastic, amazing work, so that's yeah. understandable. And who plays you in the movie of your great work for public records lawsuits? Who plays you? 
Yeah, we need Spotlight 2, public records. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I don't think that public records is the sexiest subject in the world. I mean, you could contradict me and tell me that you have a million downloads uh, to each of your episodes. We need we need like a montage of you, you know, like just looking at documents for like 10 minutes from different angles, like Breaking Bad style. All right, really quick, I just want to say this because it cracks me up, is one of Todd's other lawsuits was involved. Todd, just really quick, explain this. Why were you trying to get the birth dates of state police officers? Oh, sure. So when I was doing that story I referenced on police officers who were caught drunk driving, one of the questions I asked the state police was, what are the records like for people when they're off-duty? Are they in lots of crashes? And the state police basically told me, they don't know. They don't have records of that. So I wanted to check myself. And we're in a state where the Registry of Motor Vehicles will provide somebody's individual driving record, but they need some way to identify them when they have a common name, as a lot of police officers do. There are a lot of Mike Murphys and Sean O'Connells, and uh, there, are, there are a lot of common names, uh, just in general. I see a lot of them with police officers, and in a state with 7 million people, you need more than a first and last name to identify a specific driver. So you need either a home address, which is confidential for government employees in Massachusetts, or you need a date of birth. And date of birth have long been considered public information. People don't normally keep it a secret when they have, say, a 21st birthday or a 50th birthday. They put it on Facebook. Birth records are, are generally public in Massachusetts. It's not supposed to be a huge secret. But when I asked for those records for state police officers, the state police said no. They also I also said, hey, you could give the RMV the birth number, uh, dates of birth directly so that they know which officer it is and can po- pull the records. And they also refused to do that. So we wound up suing and a judge ruled that the records are public. We wound up appealing and an appellate court ruled. Well, a preliminary injunction wasn't the right way to do it. You needed more fuller briefs before you reached a decision. So it went back to uh, the Superior Court. And that case, which I think was launched in 2015, is still going on to this day in 2023. It sort of never got resolved. It looked like maybe the Globe's legal counsel just kind of let it sit for a while. I wasn't entirely clear on what happened. But sort of the punchline to this is... While this case has been sitting there for years, I did a public records request to the state police for the stuff Jeff and I have talked a lot about, the Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission data. These are spreadsheets that have complaints against police officers. And so they send me this spreadsheet after like months of wrangling. It was nearly a year it took them to get me these records when it should have literally just been attaching a file to an email. And so... I I published this, you know, I tagged them on Twitter. And then a day later, I'm like out for a walk, you know, in the in the state park near where I live, you know, just trying to relax, I get a phone call from a, you know, restricted number, I answer it. And it's like, hello, this is the chief legal counsel for the state police, we noticed that you published a spreadsheet that has the birth date of every single state police officer in it, we gave that to you by mistake. We meant to redact the birth dates. Could you please take that down? And I was like, let me think about it, you know, put something in writing. So I thought about it and I decided to be a really nice guy. I would take out the birth dates. I can kind of see where they're coming from. There's like issues of identity theft and, you know, I don't think it's like a super big issue, but I I figured I'd be nice to them and maybe, you know, it would come back to benefit me later. Probably not because the state police are really bad about responding to public records requests. But it's really funny. It took them, you know, nearly a year to respond to a records request that by law they had to respond to in 10 business days. But it only took them a day to call me on the phone. You know, one of their top lawyers was calling me up on the phone, you know, to chat and you know, moral of the story is that, 
maybe spend your months of delays actually reviewing the records instead of just you know messing around whatever it is they're doing but you know in that case it didn't take a lawsuit it just took them making a mistake <laughs> i have certainly gotten records from government agencies by mistake oh yeah social security numbers oopsie sorry uh <laughs> And if I get something like social security numbers, I'm going to safeguard them. I'm going to be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to be careful with people's privacy. I'm not going to post them on the internet. But there are other times when people have given me records by mistake that should be public and everybody deserves to know. And sometimes you look in court documents, uh, court files, and they're accidentally records left in a public court file that are supposed to be sealed. But are in the public interest for people to know. And there is this balancing test where journalists will take out that information that is needed to be public and make that public while keeping the rest confidential if it if there's no reason to publicize it. Yeah, and in this case, I did actually notice that the birth dates were in there before I published it, but I was like, wait a minute, wasn't there a Boston Globe lawsuit about this? That's probably why they gave them to me, but if, I didn't realize the, the background on it until after I had published it. And you know, you, I think you told me about this, Todd, about how the, the case had been appealed. But I, again, I, I'm sort of like a little ambivalent on this. I can kind of see where they're coming from, but I don't think it's a big deal, but I decided to be nice. But if any journalists out there need it, I'm happy to share it with them if there's like a practical reason to need their birth dates. I think though, actually the file is out there though, because someone got a hold of it and made a Twitter account that like wishes state police a happy birthday every day. And it like will publish automatically like excerpts from their internal affairs files. So you know, that's that's the problem. Once you put it out there, it's out there. So you should be really careful if you're trying to redact stuff, state agencies. It's worth noting that prosecutors regularly put out press releases when they arrest people and include the date of birth in the press release. Or like their home address sometimes, or at least the street where they right. live, stuff like that. Yeah. And, fr and frankly, there is a good reason to do that. Because say you arrest some, uh, some guy named john smith you don't want the public to confuse john smith who work who's a mayor or john smith who is an arbor or or a nurse with some really bad person you want to make the person as identifiable as possible to avoid confusion with other people who just happen to have the bad luck of sharing that same first and last name and just like i was trying to get dates of birth to find out if somebody had, who had had a string of accidents on the job also had an even more glaring record off the job. There's sometimes really good reasons to have that information. Todd, thank you again for joining us, for being part of this. You know, you were on our short list right from when we started this thing out of people we wanted to talk to. So thank you for taking some time, especially, you know, I know you've been feeling a little under the weather. So you being a trooper here and staying hydrated long enough to talk to <laughs> to none to to nobody's over over zoom on a monday afternoon is it's, it's an honor so thank you yeah we really appreciate it todd and i'll just say as well todd you do in addition to all your reporting you do a lot of talks and presentations for people with really practical advice about investigative reporting and public records and things you did one recent one was about accessing court records in massachusetts i'll put up a link to that because i think it's pretty helpful for people who aren't familiar with court records that's some actual practical advice that will not require you to file a lawsuit to get some information so you can check that out and you might find it interesting or helpful and again we we really appreciate it todd you are a tremendous reporter you've done lots of great work and like i said i really genuinely believe that you played a role in not just through your lawsuits but in get in terms of getting like actual legislation passed to improve the public records law so you know everyone in this state even if public records are kind of a boring topic that they don't you know, think about, you are benefiting all those people through the work you do by you know, in, improving transparency. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and spending so much effort to 
bring these records to light because even though the topic of public records and the abstract seems really nerdy, again and again and again, we find that specific records are really important for us to have. And without good laws and strong efforts to enforce those laws, we can't do those stories. We can't bring that information to light that people absolutely need to know to make sure our government works. You've been listening to Lights Out Mass. I'm Andrew Comer. I write the Mass Dump newsletter. That's andrewqmr.substack.com. That's where you can find this podcast. You can also find us on Apple and Spotify. And I'm Jeff Raymond with the Mass Transparency Project in Bramanville Tribune, masstransparency.org, bramanvilletribune.com, or at Twitter, Jeff and Milbury. Our theme music is Sunbleach by Lifeformed. You can find more music at Bandcamp. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yeah, Todd, we hope you feel better. Uh, Todd got COVID again, so <laughs> sorry, Todd. Now, see, I, see, now you're violating HIPAA, That's which right. is also something that... <laughs> Don't start with me, Jeff. HIPAA is probably a, a subject for... Todd, why don't you launch into a rant about how HIPAA doesn't apply in this situation? We'll, we'll, we'll have we'll have Todd on for HIPAA sometime in April. That's right. We'll yeah, that. <laughs> and, it, and it's not it's not hippo, and it's not <laughs> two A's, two A's, everybody. <laughs> two A's. It's, it's not two P's, and it, it and again it covers health providers it doesn't oh, cover Todd's actually gonna go into the uh <laughs> i'm sorry no it's okay go ahead all right you asked me what gets me angry it might be people citing hipaa and misspelling it and using it in wildly inappropriate ways like saying that all police records are confidential because of hipaa